Good morning, everybody. Everybody's in a good mood after that scripture reading, I'm sure. My name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through this text this morning. And one of the things I want us to kind of think about as we begin here is the idea of memories, of, uh, of forgetting. You know, so like, for example, one of the things that my wife forgets all the time is she struggles with forgetting, is she forgets that I don't like to be remember, reminded that I forgot to take out the trash, you know, so, so um, you know, but, but I always forget, I, I, there's, there's these different types of forgetting, you know, there's the simple things like, it's my job to take out the trash, and I somehow keep forgetting that, and, you know, she gets annoyed, appropriately so, and I have to deal with that, um, my own inability for, you know, it's not malicious, you know, I don't sit there and say, I'm not going to do that to stick it to her, you know, but it's, but so, so to some degree, there's a, you know, this kind of dis, like my, my love's being disordered, you know, I really love what's going on on the internet, so I forget to take out the trash, you know, so that's kind of how that works out, but there's other more serious things that we forget all the time, you know, not just like the little tasks, you know, so, so some of that's feebleness, it's our humanity, it's the broken world, you know, our brains don't work as well as we want it to, um, but there's other things that are more serious, you know, I had a, a really good family friend, or like... It's probably like the man besides my father who I spent the most time with from ages maybe five to 10, you know, who, who passed away last week. And all the memories, you know, things you'd forgotten, they come flooding in, you know, good ones, bad ones, sweet ones, hard ones, they come flooding. And why do we forget? Well, sometimes we move on, sometimes we just get, sometimes they're painful and so we don't want to experience the pain and so we, you know, we shove them down, and that's the easiest thing to do, especially when you're kind of when your memories are causing grief. Is you have, well, grief equals pain, pain equals bad. Avoid grief, shove the memories, go see Rambo instead. You know that's like our, that's like our uh, our normal human. Like we we're pain. So there's a lot of reasons why we forget, why we're people who are prone to uh, forget who we are, forget why we are, forget why God made what He made, forget what He's doing in our lives. And I would even argue that in order to sin. In order to rebel against God, one of the first things we have to do is we have to forget. Forget that he's good, we have to forget that he's close, we have to forget what he's done for us, forget how he's made us, forget his promise. So there's almost this weird progression where there's forgetting the Lord leads to sinning against the Lord. And, and I think that there's something here to this, that we're about to read this text, so I'm going through you know, Exodus 11 and halfway through 13, and what's interesting is this, the flow of this text is really not that complicated. God says, here's what I'm gonna do. He does it. And then he gives these like three ceremonies or three rituals about how Israel is supposed to remember what he's done. And I think that a lot of times we feel shame over our forgetfulness. You know, I should remember God more often. I think if you ask what percentage of your time do you spend your life being a functional atheist, even though you say believe in God, you kind of just get into auto drive mode and you forget God exists and you just kind of act like nothing is going on. But we, we've, we're extremely forgetful people. I'm an extremely forgetful person. And there's just a goodness here to the way that God treats Israel in this text that in the midst of, right in the center of, performing these massive cannot forget that it happened, miracles, plagues, wonders, things that you thought, you know, like 9-11 was not that long ago and people are saying, you know, never forget. Uh, And it's like, how could you forget 
but you do? <laughs> how could you forget these massive events? In world? How could you forget that hail fell from heaven? How could you forget that God, how could you forget the plagues? How could you forget that two million Jews walked out of the biggest economic powerhouse in the history of the ancient world? How could you forget this? But we do, we forget. And we can assume that God shames us over that, but just, there's, there's a sweetness here in this text that God says what he's gonna do, he does it, and then right in the middle of doing it, he gives them three ways that they can remember, three ways that they can help themselves not forget. And that's good news to all of us this morning, is that you might know that Jesus loves you, you might know that Jesus has saved you, you might know that Jesus rose from the dead, you might know that God is good and he doesn't withhold blessings from his children, but you also might be prone to forget that, like we all are. And so the big idea I want us to see in this text, talking through the Passover, is that God provides both for our salvation and for our ability to recollect our salvation. That's not just that he saves us and and turns us back to ourselves, but that God is strategically and intentionally helping us remember in the middle of saving us. That he doesn't just save us, but he helps us remember that we're saved. And so you need that because you're prone to forget. I need that because I'm prone to forget. And the Jews, Israel, needed that because they were prone to forget. And so what we're going to actually see here is kind of these three um, movements in this text, and it's going to kind of shape our morning. Is first is the plague. Um, then we're going to see God's providence in the midst of the plague. And then we're going to see how God's plague and the providence is a preview of uh, Jesus' next coming. And you can thank thesaurus.com for that one. So let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll walk into this. Lord, thank you for being good. I ask specifically for two things in this moment. One, that we would look with real sober eyes into the brutality that is the 10th plague, that we'd emotionally sit with it, that we'd feel it, we'd um, try to understand it. We'd wrap our, not just our minds, but our hearts around it. God, I also ask for people in this room who are uh, skeptical, who are questioning, who would use this as evidence that God isn't good, therefore he doesn't exist. I ask that you would, uh, one, help us all be sensitive to the fact that those people exist and that they're here. And also I pray that your spirit would uh, recast what's going on here as good news and not bad news. God, fill uh, my mouth with your words and fill our ears with your words and let us grow even these next couple moments. Amen. Amen. So we're, you know, I was at this, at this uh, four-year-old's birthday party yesterday, you know, which was... Uh, you know, indicator to me of the stage of life I'm in. You know, I do these things now. You know, I'm the type of person who goes to a four-year-old birthday party. But there's a moment that I really, uh, where I had like had this impasse moment, you know, where I was standing in the kitchen, I had a drink in my hand, and all like the dads with all their, you know, two to four-year-old kids were outside at the pool, and it was just pandemonium and chaos and water balloons and whatever. You know, my wife's due in like five or six weeks, and I thought like, pretty soon I'm gonna have to be out there and looked over and there's the grandpas over here sitting inside and I was like, I'm gonna be over here today. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, uh, I'll be over there when I have to be over there, but until then, I'm gonna enjoy the, the quiet, you know, the, the conversation, you know, the well-formed sentences. I'm gonna be over here, you know. And in a couple months, I'll be out there for the next 18 years, so I'm gonna do this now. But that, uh, the volume level 
was interesting to me as I think through this, as I think through like where we're at. So we're, we're in the middle of the book of Exodus, so um, kind of actually getting to the point where the plot is thickening, but not in like a things are getting loud place, but as things are slowing down situation. So we just had, you know, Israel has been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Egypt has been building this massive, wealthy, economic powerhouse on the backs of the slaves. They're, they're building up this military empire. They are expanding territory that the Jews are being mistreated and maybe the Jews aren't even the only people that Egypt enslaved, but there's other, other minorities who are being oppressed in that environment and Egypt is swelling and swelling and they start to get insecure so they start killing the firstborn sons of Israel and then the plagues start happening. And these plagues are loud, they're in your face, they're disease laden. Just imagine you know, the hail. Imagine the billions of locusts and just the noise and the pandemonium and the chaos and the, and the loudness of the judgment of the Lord on the evil oppressors. It's loud, it's ferocious, it's terrible. And then the ninth plague hits. And it's darkness over the land for three days. People can't move, people can't go out. Just the contrast from the hail to the darkness. And there's quiet. And it's a, it's a scared quiet. The Egyptians are saying, how, how much more of this? Israel's saying, how much longer is this gonna go on? And so there's this, the tension thickens and then what happens in Exodus 11 is God says one final plague. One last one. This will be the one that pushes them over the edge. This will be the nail in the coffin. This finally, Pharaoh will relent. And the, the, the word that my eye goes to in this is the word cry in verse six. Exodus eleven six, there shall be a great cry. That word cry could be translated scream. If you're reading this carefully, the last time we saw this word was in Exodus chapter three, when God says, I've heard the screams of my people Israel. And now he's saying, instead of Israel screaming, Exodus will be screaming, or Egypt will be screaming. And so you just picture with me the loud, ferocious hail on the roof um, destroying the civilization and then quiet. And the next noise you hear is the screams of terror, the screams of Egypt. Look with me in Exodus 12, 29. In that midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat in his throne to the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. Why the livestock? Part of this is its economic devastation. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great scream, a great cry in Egypt. For there's not a house where someone was dead. You see the, the back and forth here. This is, this is the point at which so far all of the plagues have just been building to this point. They've been building up to the one final plague where Pharaoh and Egypt have been killing the firstborn sons and causing Israel to scream and now we have the eye for an eye. We have the, the, the Latin word is lex talionis, the, the, the law of the retribution, the retaliation that God is giving justice 
to Egypt. Not only that, but it's, it's much worse than that, that so much of what happens in this plague is not just that the firstborns die, but also that it leads to this absolute and pure, total economic devastation. So you have to ask the question, why the firstborns? Why does God kill the firstborns? Well, the first reason is just poetic justice, right? You did it, um, you get you reap what you sow, that there's some matter in which you think you can kill um, my sons, but I'm going to kill your firstborn sons. That's one reason why. Second reason why is that firstborns, um, which is probably why Egypt tried to kill Israel's firstborn sons in the first place, that firstborns represented the heirs to the throne, that Pharaoh viewed himself as God and the son of God, and therefore Pharaoh's son was also God, and Pharaoh's son was to be a god like Pharaoh was a god. And so as the heir not just of the kingdom, but the heir of the religious cult that Pharaoh's firstborn was going to be the one who took over the line. And so not only is this person representing the, con- the continuation of Pharaoh's and Egypt's reign and their, their religious reign, but also their future economic blessing. That much like today um, in, in various third world or second world countries where you know, the number one, you know, there's a, a read an article just the other week about in India, there are whole towns in which only boys were born because all the women um, were aborted because the men represented future economic prosperity and opportunity that the latent sexism and the opportunities for women were so low that for the future of the family to thrive, we needed to have sons. And so these people are trusting in sons. Not only that, is it economically devastating that the firstborn sons and the sons die, but it leads to ongoing and even greater economic devastation, that these people are so, the Egyptians are so excited for Israel to get out that they're just handing them silver and gold, which the irony there would not be wasted, that Egypt has built their wealth on the back of the slaves. And now as the slaves are leaving, they're taking the wealth that they've kind of built with them. The money that their grandparents and grandparents' grandparents have been you know, adding to Egypt's fortune, Egypt is now willingly giving away because they're going, we don't want it, whatever it takes to you to leave, please leave. Similarly, the fact that two million slaves are leaving Egypt is ripping away the basic economic engine of what they're going on. You know, economics is huge. You know, to the shame of many Christians in the South, like George Whitfield, famous evangelical person who argued in defense of slavery, a huge part of their reasoning um, for, and this is something that we as a church have to just be honest about, a huge reasoning they used to defend slavery was not because they thought the Bible taught slavery is okay, but because they thought, well, we can't economically survive without slavery, so we need to keep slavery. And so here goes Israel, all the firstborns dead, the, the hope of future um, religious um, wait for Egypt, the hope of future economic prosperity. They take the gold, the silver, all the slave labor leaves, and God has really just kind of ripped the economic viability of Egypt out. So as if the eye for the eye judgment of the Lord wasn't bad enough, he also kind of totally leaves them their own devices economically and says, you are an economic powerhouse in the world. You're hunters and gatherers again. And this is part of this is Egypt. You know, we, we learn about how Israel even came to Egypt was God had sent Joseph through the betrayal of his sons into Egypt and Joseph's forbearance and his ability to see and to hear from the Lord actually prevented and created much of Egypt's economic wealth in the first place. That famine was coming and God used Joseph to predict and prevent the future famine. And so Egypt, the fact that they were propped up was because God had given them this common grace blessing and now all of a sudden Egypt reacts to God's blessing and enslaves the the messenger. 
So here's the question I want us to wrestle with. How do we feel about the fact that God devastates Egypt like this? Firstborn sons, the livestock, the plagues, economic destruction, chopping them off at the knees. Good luck. How do we feel about it? You know, because you kind of grow up, if you grew up in church, it's God is love, turn the other cheek. So it feels like now there's two standards. God can do one thing, but we can't do that one thing. Mostly I just want to encourage you, you have to emotionally wrestle with this and not just kind of say, God did it, therefore it's good, period, no feelings, moving on. You know, like, the, like I want us to feel, the way, like are we okay with this? Not that God needs our permission or not that God you know, needs our blessing or our thumbs up for what he does, but are you okay with it? If not, why not? I know so many people who aren't followers of Jesus who kind of look at stuff like this and be like, your God kills firstborns, Pass. And you know, that's, you know, disagreeing with God is not a good reason not to believe in him because the, the assumption is that if God exists, he's not exactly like me, right? So there, there should be places where I disagree with God and that I have to, you know, I remember I had a youth pastor one time who said, hey, what are you doing to disagree with God? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, change your mind. And then he walked away, you know? <laughs> so so there's, there's some measure in which we need to be bringing our perspective under God's perspective and that if we believe in a God who never disagrees with us, you just believe in yourself, but nonetheless, I think that there's something good to our feeling of resistance. Is it okay that God does this? Because we love people. We want people to be treated right. And there's this, you know, the, the people who I talk to who don't feel as much tension about God's retributive justice are the people who have been seriously oppressed been violated, people who grew up in war-torn countries, who saw what dictators did. To some degree, the feeling of, uh, I don't, God shouldn't be just, you know, it, it's kind of born out of a, usually a, a bubble of sorts. Um, there's a guy named Miroslav Volf, he grew up in um, Yugoslavia, which is now Croatia, and he grew up in the midst of this genocidal environment, friends, family, people killed off. Here's one of the things he said about God's justice. He says, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nine violence requires a belief in divine justice will be unpopular with many, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the thesis that non-human non-violence comes from belief in God's refusal to judge. There's some manner in which the thing that it gives us the ability to turn the other cheek, the thing that gives us the ability to forgive, the thing that gives us the ability to decide to love and be kind or set boundaries even in the midst of evil and judgment is the fact that we believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord. This is a theme um, for the rest of the Old Testament and a theme in the, in the New Testament that vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. Turn the other cheek. That if we believe we have to get right in order for it to be right, that we don't believe in God's vengeance and God's justice. 
that God as judge is a good judge. He judges rightly. That this is simultaneously a demonstration of God's power and it's a demonstration of God's righteous judgment. That Egypt is implicit and complicit and benefiting from the exploitation of millions. Even though Pharaoh might have been the one doing the talking, all of Egypt profited and did nothing. This should make us nervous about not just being the agents of injustice, but also being silent in the face of injustice. Because it seems like, oh, God should just off Pharaoh and move on. No, but it's all of Egypt. That this, this kind of challenges some of our individualistic thinking. It wasn't me, it was them. It would silence, in many degrees in this sense, is compliance. How do I feel about that? I hope that even in this moment, that kind of sitting in this and wrestling with it begins somewhat of an emotional journey for many of us. That we have to kind of really wrestle with God's justice. That it's dangerous to be an oppressor in God's world. That it's dangerous to economically profit from injustice in God's world. It's dangerous to be silent when oppression surrounds us. It's dangerous to use power to get your way. This is the God we worship. He's a good judge and he's just. Even thinking about my, you know, we pray and we should pray, come quick Lord Jesus, come soon Lord Jesus. Deliver us from these bodies of pain and death. And that's good because when we pray come Lord Jesus, we're saying come, you know, make all things new, wipe away the brokenness. But if you read the end of Revelation, when Jesus comes, his robe is dipped in blood and he has a sword and he's come to conquer. And so when we say, come Lord Jesus, we're both saying, remove all sin and brokenness. But what if the removing of sin and brokenness includes unrepentant, sinful people? Praying, come Lord Jesus, is both inviting him to judgment and inviting him to make all things new. And we need to be honest about that. Do you want Jesus to come soon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, thanks Jim, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But I just want us to recognize that that is not just, you know, the, the sky is painted with rainbows of a moment. You know, that there's, that God is coming and he's waging war and he's executing judgment and his making all things new includes him eliminating the hard-hearted unrepentant. So, that, so this is the plague. God, eye for an eye, you get what you deserve, and I'm economically devastating you in the midst of your ungratitude for I'm the one who made you what you are. And here's, a, here's one side point here that we need to recognize. When it comes to holy war in particular and God's judgment on the nations, is you think about all the people nowadays who think they're doing God's holy war. They're saying, you know, in the name of God, I'm gonna go do this thing or do that thing, and they're kind of taking upon themselves, is this is God as agent. This is not people in the name of God doing what they think should happen. This is God as the agent. That his people are absent. So notice this, 
that two million people, so in 12 verse 37, 600,000 men plus the women and children, that probably means over two million Jews. That is plenty of people to mount a violent insurrection against Pharaoh. That is a large base for an army. We don't know exactly how big Egypt is, but two million people is plenty to form at least a little bit of a painful mutiny. But God's means is not, you know, cause Israel to rebel, but it's, it's God himself, that God is the agent. That whenever we talk about holy war, it's God acting on his own to destroy the oppressors. It is not people taking up arms in the name of the Lord. If you find yourself being tempted to take up arms in the name of the Lord, you might be loving your country, and that's okay and that's good. I'm not saying that we should all be absolute pacifists. But it's not holy war. If anything, people going on holy war in the name of the Lord misses the whole point of the entire Old Testament narrative, which is that God overthrows oppressors. Now these people, all they've done is had dinner and then they put their sandals on and they're free. That's really how, that's, that's their role of participating in this. So the plague, the stamp, the screams of Egypt, the people go, the people walk out. Here's what's crazy, another thing about the goodness of this plague is, um, look with me in 12 verses 38. Oh, starting 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men and women, besides women and children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So it's not just Israel who's leaving Egypt, but there's probably Egyptians leaving Egypt. There might be other minorities who Egypt has been oppressing who are leaving Egypt. That it's, it's not just God saving Israel, just the ethnic descendants, but there's some measure in which all the Egyptians saw what just happened, and maybe the other minorities who are being oppressed saw what just happened, and said, we're going with that person. Not only that, but 40 years later, when Israel actually begins to arrive in Canaan after being in the desert, they arrive with open arms to some Canaanites who say, we have been trembling for about 40 years because we heard what the Lord did to Egypt. And if the Lord can do that, then please come on in. <laughs> that there's evangelistic methodology and strategy here to what God is doing. That he's including people besides Israel in, in the Exodus and he's letting his name be made known throughout the nations. That that's exactly what he says in verse 11. Um, in ver chapter 11, verse 11, the Lord said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied both in their telling and in their happening throughout the land. That God is interested in people noticing that they're Idols fail, noticing that their false gods don't protect, noticing that the things they've trusted in for economic prosperity, the things they've trusted in for military prosperity, the things they've trusted in to provide meaning and shape to their life, that these things ultimately fail. That's the plague. Here's the next piece I want us to look at is God's providence in the midst of this plague. So we're gonna see two things here. One is the way that God provides Israel and the people a, a way to avoid being wrapped up in God's judgment. And the second thing is the way that God provides for their memory to be able to do this. And so let's look closely. So um, some of you may not know this, but I'm Jewish um, ethnically, or I'm half Irish, half Jewish, which makes me Jewish. Um, if you ask a rabbi, it's based on your mom. So my kids will not be Jewish. So, 
but my mom's Jewish, so I'm Jewish. And so we grew up doing the Passover, this Seder thing. So it, uh, chapter 12, most chapter 12 actually outlines these various instructions of what needs to happen, that you go and you find um, a, a lamb and you, you slaughter it and you eat it quickly. And so um, essentially what God is saying is there's this particular meal I want you to do and, and really the pacing of these things really, really begins to slow down, that it goes plague, 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 plague threatened. Okay, hold up, pause, pause button. We're gonna remember this moment. Remember this moment. Here's, here's how you're gonna remember this moment, is you're gonna have this very special meal and you're gonna kill this lamb without blemish and you're gonna roast it quickly. So it gives instructions on how to roast it. Um, you're gonna, um, verse eight in chapter 12, do not eat it raw or boiled, but roast it with its head and its legs and its inner parts. Um, let none of it remain till morning. So it's saying you're gonna cook this. This is the fastest way to cook. You're gonna, you're gonna do this thing. You're gonna eat like you're in a hurry. You're gonna eat with your clothes on, with sandals on your feet, with the staff in your hand, and you're gonna eat in haste. And not only that, but you're gonna eat this unleavened bread. Why are we gonna eat unleavened bread? Well, because we're gonna be getting out in a hurry because we want people to remember what's going on. And they're gonna eat this unleavened bread and you're gonna going to use this aromatic plant called hyssop, and you're going to dip the hyssop in the blood, and you're going to spread it over the posts, over the doorposts, and then you're going to eat these bitter herbs, and so what happens is God creates these all five senses memory devices. You know, the taste, the touch, the hyssop smells strong, eat the bitter herbs. You remember as a kid doing the Passover Seder, and we'd do the Jewish thing, you know, and we get to the part where you eat the bitter herbs and everyone's throwing a tantrum, you know, like, and like you take kale and you dip it in salt water as though kale wasn't bitter enough on its own. And this is, this is like before kale was in everybody's smoothies, you know, and you, this is, and you take a big bite of kale and then you dip kale and you put horseradish, not like mayonnaise up horseradish, but like horseradish, horseradish. You eat it and it feels like your brain is on fire, you know, and you're sweating and being like, why are we doing this? Why are we, no. He said, because our people were enslaved for 400 years and it was very bitter. That's the whole point. And so, so God's providing this Passover way and he's saying here's what's gonna happen is you're gonna differentiate between you and the people and you're gonna put this blood on the doorpost and we're gonna have this meal and we're gonna do this thing and we're gonna go about this way. And so here's what's crazy is that Israel still had to be protected from God's judgment. It's not as though Egypt was sinful and Israel was sinless. So imagine with me, you know, this is D.A. Carson, a Bible teacher, he uses this illustration, but imagine with me there's a handful of different Jews who heard about these stories. You know, just mind yourself, nine plagues have just devastated the world, and Moses comes back and goes, hey guys, here's what needs to happen. You need to get this lamb, you need to kill it, eat it, have it all, dip it in blood, wipe it, and when the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, sees the blood, he's gonna pass over that house because that, that house will be covered in the blood of the lamb. Imagine like different Jews come together and one Jew says, you know what, I've been a pretty good person. I don't think I need the blood on the lamb. God will understand. I'm not as bad as those Egyptians. I don't need lamb's blood. I'll just eat the meal, but I'll skip the, the antics. Next Jew comes and says, you know what? I've, you know, I have pretty good parents, you know, I Never really done that bad of stuff. You know, I, I go to synagogue when we can do it. I read a couple of verses um, as a child. You know, I mean, I rebelled when I was like 17, but now I don't anymore, you know, so like I made that right. I'm gonna skip the lamb blood thing, you know. My neighbors will do it and God will understand. If he exists, 
he'll understand. I'm not sure he exists, but if he exists, he'll get it, that I'm basically good. The next Jew comes up and he goes, this feels crazy. This is pretty nuts. A lamb's blood, how arbitrary. Who picked this? Moses, is this your idea? Moses, re eating stuff in the wilderness again? You know, this, what happened was, you know what? I'm not even sure if this is gonna work. I'm not totally sure I trust Moses, but I do know that God's been devastating the Egyptians. And I do know that it seems like he's building towards something. And I don't really understand everything, but I do know that, Lord have mercy on me, I'm gonna do this thing. I dipped the lamb, but put over the post. <laughs> the next Jew comes up and he goes, you know what, this is a great idea. I trust the promises of God. Thank you most for hearing the Lord. Yes and amen, the end, does a ceremony put on the post. You say, which of those four Jews did judgment pass over their house? See, one of the things we think all the time is that it's the goodness of our works or the, even like the heartfelt nature of our works. That's what the first two Jews trusted in. You know, I've been pretty good, so God will see the goodness of my works and he'll pass over. Or sometimes you think that it's actually the goodness of our faith, the purity of our faith. It's not the purity of our works and it's not the purity of the faith that both of those last two Jews were covered in the blood of the lamb. And if we think for a minute that these Israelites, it was the goodness of their faith or the goodness of their works that saved them, it was not. It was the goodness of the blood of the lamb. But we're the same, right? Nothing's new. I'm basically good. If God exists, he'll understand. You know, whatever, Moses is smoking crack. I don't need any of that stuff. Um, man, and I just know, I think most of the people in this church, most people I talk to are probably more like that third person who's like, man, their faith is a mess. The strength of it comes and goes based on how much coffee they've had. You know, they, their confidence in the scriptures rises and falls based on who they talked to last. You know, but there's this saying, you know, but I trust in the blood of the lamb. I don't trust in the purity of my faith. And so a lot of times we think it's the intensity or the strength of our faith, but it's the blood of the lamb that saves. And not only in the midst of that, so, so God provides respite from his judgment in the midst of his good and righteous judgment. Because Israel's not sinless. Egypt is not sinless in the midst of all this. But the, the, the thing I'm noticing, and part of this might be because I'm about to be a dad, but I just want to notice, I want to point out to you Three key texts that, that really matter. So God gives three ceremonies that are all gonna help him remember. The first one is the Passover, second one is the consecration of the firstborn, and the third one is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And I wanna show you just three quick um, verses that really matter. So verses, chapter 12, verse 26, in the middle of the Passover ceremony, it says, and when your children say, what do you mean by this? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of people of Israel and Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Also look with me at chapter 13, verse eight. This is in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But you shall say to your son on this day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a memorial and a sign. Then skip down at the verse, chapter 13, verses 14. And when it comes time, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt that God is creating these ceremonies for these forgetful people to remember what happened. Not only that, but he's creating these 
you know, again, five senses object lessons for the sake of them passing on the stories to their children. This is both a, a parenting lesson, a teaching lesson, a memory lesson, but just this reality that God is creating these memory devices for fathers and mothers to pass on to their children. Remember what happened, remember what happened, remember what happened. And it's actually the, in participation in the ritual that helps people remember what God has done. This is why we light fireworks on 4th of July. Why? Because the bombs were bursting midair. And it's a symbol, it's a sign, it's a memory device to help our people, like remember how we got to be who we are. That God wants people to remember not just who they are, but how they got to be who they are. That the history matters. This is what's crazy, is God is not naive. He knows these people are sinful and rebellious and maybe stupid, and they're gonna forget. Here's, this is the huge theme in the Old Testament is the weakness of the Israelite memory. Look at this. It says, um, here's the first one. You forgot the one who gave you birth, Deuteronomy 32. You forgot, they forgot the Lord their God, Judges 3. You forgot the Lord their God, 1 Samuel 7. You forgot the works and his wonders, Psalm 78. You forgot his works, Psalm 106. You forgot God who had done great things in Egypt, Psalm 106. Their fathers forgot my name, Jeremiah 23. You went after lovers and forgot the Lord. So the, the whole sweep of the rest of the Old Testament is about them forgetting. And God knows this. And he saves them anyway. And he loves them anyway. And he provides for their forgetfulness in the midst of the event itself. You're gonna forget. And guess what? I'm gonna do what I can to help you remember. Do you see the gentleness of the Lord in this? Can you imagine witnessing 10 plagues in Egypt and then forgetting? Yes, you can. Because you do, because I do. Can you imagine believing in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgetting? Yes, you can, because you do, and so do I. And yet God in his goodness still provides accommodation, gentleness, graciousness for our forgetfulness. This is the last thing we see in this text is actually the preview of what's going on here. That, you know, a lot of you have been connecting the dots the whole time. You know, if you grew up in church, this is a, this is a huge part of this. But we see Jesus in this text in powerful ways. We don't just want to read Exodus 12 like Jews, but we want to read Exodus 12 like Christians and the goodness of the Lord in looking at this. That God in the Passover is actually creating symbolism that he's going to make use of 2,000 or so years later when he sends Jesus to earth. That Jesus is the true and greater firstborn son. That Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the bread of life and the body of Christ shows to us the fact that he is the one who's come from heaven to provide for us on the way and also that, but his blood was shed. The lamb shed the blood so that we could be passed over from divine judgment. Do you see that the thing that we do every single Sunday, the, the thing to me that I would say, this has to happen or it's not really a worship service or a church. And even in the history of the church, they said the church faithfully exists where it does two things. It rightly preaches the word and it administers the sacraments. The communion. Why do we do this? Because we forget. Why do we hold in our hands the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine? And every single Sunday, Say, the body of Christ given for you, the, the blood of Jesus shed for you. Why do we do this? That the main work of the church is remembering. That's the main work of this church. 
that that could become rote, that could become meaningless, that could become whatever, whatever that is. But the primary function of the church here is to remember what God has done and to then faithfully live out of the fact that he has done what he has done. This is why Jesus on that he was betrayed. First Corinthians 11 says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that he was betrayed took bread. So this is Jesus during the observance of the Passover with his disciples. They're doing the Exodus 12 thing and he holds up at the end. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim to ourselves. we proclaim to one another, we remember what God has done in history. That God is a God of justice. That there's one means, one means of escaping his justice. And that is the blood of the lamb. Who absorbed into himself the wrath of God for the people. That no drops of the lamb's blood was wasted. But every house was covered in the blood of the lamb was saved. And I hope that we, so, so here's, the, here's the big idea I really want us to get, and I said this at the beginning, I'll say this again, is that God provides for our salvation and he also provides for our recollection. That we can be saved by the blood of the lamb and that God is gracious and gentle and patient with us in our forgetfulness. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for being good, thank you for being kind, thank you for being patient. God, I do ask that we'd see you as a good judge and that would make us simultaneously nervous and grateful. That we'd be nervous about whether we're trusting in ourselves for salvation, but we'd be excited because that means that you'll make all wrong things right. God, I pray for every person in this room that we would trust in the blood of the lamb, not in the goodness of our works or the goodness of our faith, but in the fact that Jesus willingly gave his life for us. Help us trust nothing else. Amen.